Good morning. Hey, it's good to see everybody this morning. Um, did anybody else feel bad for George when he walked out with the fireworks and they told him no fireworks? His face just so sad. Sorry, George. Hey, listen, it's been a, it's been a really, um, really awesome morning for me this morning. I had a chance to speak to the 8 o'clock service and the 9 o'clock service and traditional before I've come over here. So besides bouncing between three venues this morning, at the 9 o'clock service in the traditional room this morning, there were two students that are uh, past students of ours who grew up in this program, who after they graduated from high school, they went and they married over their heads again, amen, and then they have two children, they each have a child, and one of them was being baptized this morning. Uh, at the nine o'clock service, nothing makes a youth pastor feel old than a student who you saw in middle school and high school grow up, get married, have children. I'm learning that more and more right now. But also, nothing makes me more proud than to see some of these boys who've grown up in this program become the men that they've become. And um, as somebody who continues to work with the students and the youth of this church, like I am, I am so blessed to be able to see these students grow up and become godly young men and women and husbands and wives and, and parents. And um, it's just such an exciting thing this morning. And in fact, what we're going to talk about this morning has everything to do with the experience that I had at 9 o'clock this morning. So what we're going to talk about this morning is, is recognizing that God is taking us someplace, that our, our lives are not just stagnant. They are meant to be dynamic. They are meant to be changing and moving. And there's a goal that God has for us, a place that he wants to get us to. But in order to get there, we have to understand where here is. Where are we at this moment? Who are we truly, honestly, to be able to make it to the place that God wants us to be? So let's pray this morning. And then if you want to, you can open up to Romans chapter 12 already. We'll get there in just a moment. And we'll jump into some scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your great mercy, your great love for us, God. I'm so thankful, God, that your mercy is meant to move us. It's meant to change us and push us forward, Father. And I pray that every person here this morning, God, including myself, would not be satisfied with the place that we find ourselves right now, realizing and recognizing, God, there are things that you want to do within our lives. There are ways that you want to use us within our lives. So, Father, this morning, help us to be open and honest and humble enough to come before you and to ask you to move within us. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. When I moved to South Carolina from Indiana, I thought I hit the jackpot here in Columbia. Now, which is an odd thing to say because even working with students in 12 years at this church, the commonality that I hear from high school students is, oh, I can't wait to get out of Lexington. I'm like, are you kidding me? Try living in Lafayette, Indiana. It's a totally different ball game. In fact, when I grew up, the only things I ever saw was like flat ground, cornfields, the occasional farm pond. That was like the, the, the topographical you know, change that you would see within Lafayette. Coming down to South Carolina, being two hours from the beach, two hours from the mountains, Lake Murray right in your backyard. I mean, this is amazing. And so when I came to school here at CIU, I had a professor named Huli Goddard who would take us on the weekends, um, a few of us from the school up to North Carolina and go backpacking in Pisgah National Forest. And he would bring a map and a compass. And we were outdoor leadership minors at CIU as well as youth ministry majors. And so we would go and we would hike around the mountains and, and see the beauty of Pisgah National Forest. And we'd get on top of these mountains and we'd pull out the map and get it oriented to the compass and look around. And he would say, okay, here's how you know where you're at on the map. You can look out, see this right here on the map. That's that mountain right there and that mountain right there and this river and so forth. And we were able to really determine where we're at exactly on the map. And then be able to navigate to where we wanted to go because we could look around and see the differences in the things around us. It was actually really cool. So we would go weekend and weekend after, after that, and he would teach us over and over and over again. And because I was outdoor minor, at the very end of my school at, at CIU, we actually traveled to Wisconsin in December. I said Wisconsin in December. 
and we flew into Wisconsin. We got out, and um, we were going to be a part of an extension of Wheaton College, a place called Honey Rock, an amazing camp up there. And they were going to put us through three days of training to see how good we were at being outdoor leaders. So we flew into Wisconsin. We got out. We spent the first day preparing for the next three days in um, the frozen tundra. And that night of the first day we got there, they said it was time to go. So we were going to go hike into the wilderness of Wisconsin in the middle of the pitch black dark, 10 degrees outside. So we were all bundled up and we took off. And myself and another person were put in charge of our group of 15 to begin with to take us on this map from where we were to where we were trying to go. So we walked outside and unlike North Carolina, in Wisconsin, if you've ever been there before, there's no topography flat as a pancake, let alone the fact that it just snowed the day before. It was fresh white snow everywhere. So everything's black, everything's covered in snow, and it's completely flat. So for the next hour, we started to traverse through the woods. What we thought where we were on the map was eventually not where we were on the map. So we thought we found a new place where we were on the map. That was not the right place on the map. And so for an hour, we were trying to get to this location that was marked on the map for us. And I was getting really frustrated, and everybody else in the group was too, and, and they were letting themselves uh, uh, voice that to us. So for an hour, we hiked, 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 hiked. Eventually, we came to this place where all of a sudden I saw these footprints in the snow, and I'm like, perfect. We found someone else in the woods. Maybe they know where we're going to this location. And so I realized those footprints that I saw were actually the footprints of all 15 of us an hour earlier. And so for an hour, we had traveled in the completely wrong direction all the way back to the place that we had originally started. You want to talk about frustration and disappointment, 10-degree weather, Wisconsin, middle of the night, an hour in the wrong direction. Everybody was super happy with us. And maybe, maybe you, you've had an experience like this. Maybe it wasn't backpacking in Wisconsin or being outdoors like that, but you, maybe you've had this kind of experience in your life. I certainly have, where there have been times in my life where I've, I've finally stopped and looked around enough to realize that I'm right back where I was five years ago. You ever had the experience that you've just been stuck, that, that every time that you try to move forward, you just end up coming right back around again? And every day seems like the day before, and nothing ever seems to change, and it seems like there's no progress, there's no movement forward, there's no real growth, it just, it just continues on day in and day out. This is frustrating. And what I've found in my life is that without really knowing where you are, you're never really going to make it where you're trying to head. Without truly knowing where you are on the map or within life, you're never going to end up where you want to end up. You can't get there without knowing where here is. And maybe like me, you've felt stuck before. Now, being in this church for 12 years, it's amazing to me that when I look around this church, there are many here at Mount Horeb who have been, maybe they were born at Mount Horeb. They've been there their entire lives here at Mount Horeb. Maybe you've been in the church for a long time, too. And so you've heard every sermon probably three times. Every passage of Scripture you can think of within Scripture, you've heard a sermon about that thing. You grew up going to every VBS you could possibly go to. Like, you know all the truths of the Bible. You've grown up within the church. You have multiple Bibles at your house, like in every room of the house. And maybe you even repost Christian content on Facebook day in and day out. But one of the saddest truths is that even though this might be our life and the story of our life, we've done this for a long time. Many of us, including myself, too often we have a low-grade frustration about our spiritual stagnation. After all of this, after, after all of our time, there still seems to be no growth. We still have the same shortcomings we've always had, the same sins that were of old are still current, and, and God seems to be an afterthought rather than like the priority of our life still today. Each day seems to be like the day before. And maybe you, like me, have felt stuck before. I walked outside the other day. My wife and I had decided to buy um, our youngest son a new bicycle. And the reason was because he had some issues with the old bicycles. The first bicycle that came from my older son, my wife ran over it with the vehicle. So we, that was not going to be an option. 
And then he tried to get on Eli's old bike, and that old bike's a little bit too big for him. And in fact, one day I walked outside, and he was sitting on Eli's bike, wanting to ride the bike across the driveway, but the problem is he wasn't going anywhere. His feet could barely touch the pedals. He was trying to turn the pedals, but every time he would try, he just was stuck and not really moving in any direction. As I got a little bit closer, I began to realize the reason that he could not move, besides his legs being very short, was because he was holding on to the brake on the handle. The one brake on the entire bike, and he was holding on to it with a death grip and was unable to actually move the pedals to be able to go anywhere in the, in the driveway. And he was saying, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. As I got closer to him, I said, Owen, oh, all you got to do is let go of this brake. When let go of this one thing, and if you let go of this one thing, you might experience movement. You might experience some kind of movement forward, some kind of, some kind of real growth. And I'm afraid within our lives, we have the same kind of experience that Owen has. There's this, there's this one thing in our life There's this one thing that we keep holding on to, and because of that, it stifles our growth. It stifles our ability to be able to move forward and become the people that God wants us to be. But we got a death grip on it. We won't let it go. You know, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, Paul has has been writing to his listeners and to his readers, and he's been communicating really one specific thing, and it's an amazing truth, a wonderful truth. He's been talking about for 12 chapters now something called the grace of God. Now, I can't overstate the kind of importance that the grace of God has within our life, and certainly Paul tries to, for 11 chapters, communicating to us that there's this, there's this amazing engine, this change agent, this power that exists within our life, and it comes from the grace and the mercy of God, and it's life-changing, and it's a transforming gift. And after Paul communicates this for 11 chapters, in chapter 12, he makes a bit of a shift that I think this morning could be the key to us realizing some of the things that maybe we are holding on to that's keeping us from any kind of movement forward, from being able to make it there instead of just here, to be able to see some kind of growth within our life. And Paul says this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We, you may have read this earlier. Sorry, this was read earlier in the other services. I keep forgetting what service I'm in. You've probably read this verse before, these two verses in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy what? Sacrifice. Like the, the kind that is acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In the NIV translation, it says it this way. Paul begins this chapter 12 by saying, in view of God's great mercy. In view of God's great mercy. Paul begins chapter 12 after talking about the grace of God for 11 chapters by saying, listen, if you want to step forward, if you want to move forward, if you want to become someone new, if you want to experience the life God has for you, you might have to change the way that you see the world around you. You may have to flip the lens on the way that you see your family and your marriage and your workplace and your life altogether. Because for some of us, the the problem is we have this way of viewing the world that is keeping us stuck and floundering. It's the way we see our wives and our husbands and our children, our circumstances and people around us that keeps us from being able to move forward. If you remember just a few weeks ago, we had the eclipse here. Remember? Everybody lost their minds. My wife included. Because she was, she was making sure, Trevor, you have to understand, whatever, whatever lenses you bring home, whatever glasses you bring home, they had better be the correct ones. Because I'm not burning my kids' retinas out. I'm like, I don't understand. I don't want to burn my kids' retinas out either. So I, I made sure I brought the home, home the, correct, 
the correct visual aid to put over their eyes so they could look up and see this thing. And the cool thing was, like, if you had the correct thing to be able to see this eclipse right over our hometown, and people came from all over the United States to Lexington to see this for six minutes. And we went to my parents' house, we went out in the yard, and we had these things, we put them over our eyes, they were the correct thing, all retinas were protected. And in doing so, you were able to see this amazing spectacle take place before you. If you didn't have them, you couldn't see it, and you would go blind. But the coolest thing was when you actually saw it come over and it, it finally like fully eclipsed itself, you could take them off and see these things that were happening. I'm afraid that for some of us in the world that we exist within and the things that we experience day in and day out and the people we surround ourselves with, we are looking at them in the wrong kind of lens. We're not looking at them with the lens of the mercy of God. And Paul says, here's the first step to moving forward. Recognizing and seeing everything through this lens, first and foremost, the grace and the mercy that has been extended to you by God. It changes the way that you see your work. It's not something you have to do, it's something you get to do. It changes the way you see your marriage. It gives you hope. It changes the way you see your children. You can love them more. It changes the way you see your successes. That's not really about you. And it changes the way you see your failures and it helps you find forgiveness, be able to move forward and take heart and move on to the next chapter of your life. You see, in verse two, Paul doubles down on what he just said in verse one. He says this, no longer conform to the patterns of this world. Here's what I've noticed as I look around the world around us. It's not working. Whatever we've chosen to do, whatever the world has chosen to do with their life, it's not working. And, and the problem is we are meant to not conform to the patterns. We are meant to look different. And he says the way you do this is by changing the way that you think. We have to change the way that we see. We have to change the way that we think. And no longer conform to the patterns of this world because what they're doing is just not working. And for some reason, we as Christians who are followers of Jesus, we continue to replicate the exact same thing to where our marriages look no different from anyone else around us. The language you choose to use looks no different from anyone else around us. The way we treat people is no different than anyone else around us. And Paul said this is not how it should be. In view of the mercy of God, we have the opportunity to change the way that we think, to not conform to the patterns of this world, but live a whole new kind of way, to move forward, to grow, to become more and more the kind of person that God wants us to be. And then in chapter 12, Paul speaks of the key, the one thing that I believe will open up a whole new movement for us, that will change the way that we see the world, that will change the way that we live, and it's very simple in its concept. We talk about it and it's simple, but it's very difficult in its execution. Paul says this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And Paul's verbiage here, he's using very specifically on purpose. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He's referring to the Old Testament where the people of God, they would relate to God, they'd be made right with God by taking a sacrifice of some kind an animal or the first fruits of their crop, they would come and they would bring it before God. They would sacrifice it on the altar and they would, they would burn it there before God as a way to please and honor God and also to make sure their relationship with God was restored. They'd be washed clean of their sins. The sacrificial system was incredibly important to the Old Testament follower of God. As you probably know, there's another sacrifice that comes along that's the ultimate sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, and his name is what? Jesus Christ. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he lives his life, he gives himself up on the cross, he resurrects from the dead. Jesus is a living sacrifice as well. He gives his life, he dies, in order that we might experience new life. Once and for all, 
And so when Paul says you are meant to be living sacrifices, he's choosing this language on purpose. And every person hearing him, every person reading this would have totally understood what he was talking about, to be a living sacrifice. Now the problem is, Paul takes the sacrificial word and he joins it with what? Living It's very different from the Old Testament. If you were an animal in the Old Testament, you're always in danger of being slaughtered for the sake of the relationship with God. And a dead sacrifice is very different from a living sacrifice. A dead sacrifice has no choice in it. But a living sacrifice, we have the opportunity and the choice every single day to crawl back off the altar. And too often we do. I mean, there have been times in my life where I have have really wanted to live out the kind of life that God wants me to live. I've laid my life down. I've sacrificed. I've I've laid it down and said, God, you get to make the calls, not me. And for a few days, a few weeks, some months, maybe some years even, I feel like I'm I'm doing it in such a way where God's using me and growing me and taking me places. And for some reason, I wake up one morning and you're like, you know what? Today, it's me. I'm making the choices today. I'm living my life the way I want to today. And I crawl back off the altar. But a living sacrifice has an opportunity to honor and glorify God in an incredible kind of way. If every single morning when we wake up, we choose once again to lay our lives down before God, to honor and to please him. This is the key to the change that we can see within our life. It's sacrifice. It's a paradox, but it's, it's putting to death certain things so you might experience real life, the kind of life that God has for you. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it's expounded upon even more by saying this. My old self has been crucified with Christ, the writer says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is no longer I who live, but it's now Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. My old ways have been crucified with Christ. You see the problem for many of us is we are Christians just in name. We're followers of Jesus just in name. Not realizing that there's, there's things that are meant to die when we give our lives to Christ. There are things that we are meant to lay down and to sacrifice, no longer living for ourselves, but now allowing Christ to live within us. I mean, Jesus should be the calling card for who we are, should be the mark of who we are. But too often, Jesus is just supplementary. We add him on. So unfortunately for a lot of us, we're, we're just a Lexington elite first, and then we're a follower of Jesus. We're a successful business person first, but then we're a follower of Jesus. We're the prom queen first, but then we're a follower of Jesus. We're a Democrat first or Republican first. We're black, white first, and then we're a follower of Jesus. Paul says this is not how it's supposed to be. When you crucify your old self, It's gone and it's dead and you become something new altogether with Jesus Christ being the very foremost of who you are. I've made this this mistake many times over of feeling like Jesus is just supplementary. I'm just gonna add him on to whatever I'm doing or whoever I am and I'll, I'll put him on when it's appropriate, when it's convenient. Otherwise, I don't see him as a necessity for my life. Really, really necessary because here's what I've found in my life and in others' lives as well. Everyone wants new life, but no one wants to die. Everyone wants to experience the new life of God, but nobody's willing to really sacrifice the things that need to be dead so that you can experience new life. The past two days at my house, we have been remodeling our kitchen. And I guess it was necessary. We had some tile that just fell off our backsplash a few months ago. I didn't mind five or six of them being gone. My wife seemed to have an issue with it. 
So we decided it was time to actually put new backsplash up, and it was going to like change the whole kitchen. It was going to be beautiful and wonderful. And I don't know about you, if you've ever done any kind of remodeling, then to be able to put the new tile on, what do you got to do first? Tear everything else out. In fact, over and over and over again, I was a bit frustrated the past two days. I was trying to put the new tile up and come to realize there was a little bit of stuff still left in the corners. So I couldn't get it just right, take it back down, do it all over again. It was a pain. I mean, the same is true in our life as well. We, we need to recognize there are some things in our life that don't jive with the kind of life that Jesus Christ has for us. And those things must die. I mean, when I got married, I thought I had it all together. Amen, men? And as soon as I got married, I realized I had nothing together. I realized there was all kinds of pride in my life when I got married, all kinds of selfishness in my life when I got married that I didn't really, real, really recognize until that point in time. There were some things I had to put to death to have the kind of relationship that I wanted to have with my wife. And some things still that had to be put to death in order to have the relationship I want with my wife. There's nothing different in our relationship with God. And Paul says, this is what it looks like to put to death the things of old that you might find new life, to experience the kind of life that God has for us. I've heard it in educational circles like this, that the way that we grow is realizing that we're in this room right here, and to get to that room, there's a threshold that we have to cross. There's a place that we have to transition from this room into that room, and that's a very difficult process because sometimes it takes a lot of effort. Sometimes you can't take some baggage with you into that particular room to be able to make it to there. When I was in high school, my family and I lived in the Dominican Republic for a while, about six months. And when we lived in the Dominican, uh, my parents worked with an organization that worked with troubled American youth from mostly America. And essentially, a lot of times, these kids had an opportunity to either go to jail here in America or they could go to this program and get their life back together, hopefully, and, and hopefully have an opportunity for a new life. And so there was all these students at this program in the Dominican, and we lived alongside of them. I went to school with them and everything. And they had this, like, uh, this numerical system that they were in. And so the higher number they were on, the more opportunity they had for freedom to do certain things or whatever. And it was all based on, like, do they make their bed? Do they go to school? Are they respectful? Those kind of things. It was just kind of putting back the, the fundamental things that most of us can do kind of day in and day out. And there were these numbers that they would, they would work their way up on. And every Christmas at this program, they would actually gift the students the level above the level they were on. And it was amazing because these students all of a sudden had all this new freedom they'd never known before because of this gift they were given at Christmas. But guess what would happen almost immediately? They'd fall right back down to the number they were before. And here's why. They had not done the hard work of earning that particular level. They had no idea what it was like to keep that level. The maturity wasn't there to be able to do that. So they would slide back down. But here's what would take place. They would see a glimpse of what it was like to be on that next level. They would get a taste of what it's like to be in that next place, to be in that next room, to cross that threshold and be over there. There have been times in my life where I've seen glimpses of what it would look like for me to be the kind of husband that God would want me to be. I've seen glimpses, I've had tastes of what it would look like for me to be the kind of father that God really wants me to be, to have the kind of integrity and the commitment that God really wants me to have. I've seen glimpses of this in my life. And, and for me, it's incredibly motivating because it feels so good to do that. It, it feels so right to live that way because it was God intended for my life. But there's some hard work that it takes to get into that next room. There's some things I have to be honest about, some things I have to wrestle with to get into that next room, some things that have to die in order to be able to move into that next room, to be able to move forward and to grow. Maybe there's some things in your life also that need to be placed on the altar, that need to be sacrificed. Maybe this morning there's an addiction that you just keep holding on to that you've got to finally say, I've got a problem and it's got to go because it's keeping me from moving forward. 
Maybe there's some kind of shame in your life that it's finally time to let someone else in on so you can move forward and go into the next room. Maybe you have some anger, some unforgiveness, some selfishness. I mean, you name it. What is it in your life that's keeping you from moving forward into the person that God has you to be? What is that one thing that you are not willing to lay down to let die that you might experience real, true life? Paul goes further in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. And he begins to speak about a key to this next aspect. In verse 3 he says, Because of the privilege and authority God has given to me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think of yourselves better than you really are. But be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given you. What Paul says basically in verse 3 is he says, listen, here's, here's a key. You have to have a sober self-assessment. You have to be honest and be humble to see yourselves for who you actually are, to be able to recognize where you're actually at and where you want to get to and the distance that exists between. I think we have to get real like real, real, with where we're at and what's going on. When I was in college, my mentor, Huli, that would take us up in the mountains and go hiking, he and I would meet every week, and he would walk out behind my dorm under these huge trees. He'd have two chairs. He'd plop them down, and for an hour, hour and a half, we'd just talk. He'd ask me questions. We'd read scripture together, and he was just trying to, trying to mold me and shape me into the person that I believed God wanted me to be and I wanted to be. The problem was, for two years of us meeting together, I lied to his face every single time we would talk. That wasn't like blatant, awful lies, but it was just enough. I would give him just enough what he was asking, but not all of it, so he'd be appeased and we could move forward. And for two years, I did this. He'd ask me about life, what was really going on. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I mean, things are really good, actually. You know, all the while knowing that in my heart, there was all kinds of stuff that was going on and brewing. I'll never forget one day, we walked out. He put two chairs underneath the tree, and we sat down. He had a book in his hand. And he opened the book to chapter 6, entitled The Imposter. By a guy, by, uh, the book's called Abba's Child, and he handed me the book. He said, I want you to read this, this page out loud. I was like, okay. I took the book, trying to be cool, started reading the first page, and as I was reading every sentence and every paragraph that I read, it was defining me exactly over and over and over again. And I got done with that first page, and I looked up at him, and he said, who do you think that is? And I really wanted to say Nick Cunningham. <laughs> or, or anyone other than myself. But I, but I couldn't. I knew that as I was reading, I was defining who I was. And for so long, I'd been an imposter. I'd put on this facade of who I wanted to be without actually being real with people. And it was keeping me from being able to grow. It was keeping me from being able to move forward. I was at a Bible college, about to go into ministry. And aside from Huli doing the work that he's done in my life, I don't know who I'd be today. And finally recognizing there's some things that had to change. I had to get honest. As a church staff, we just got these books and we did a personality test called the Enneagram test. And now I'm not like a personality test guy. So I was like, okay, this should be great, guys. So we decided to do this personality test. And so I took the test and I was a bit astonished because the test told me that I am uh, a number three, the achiever, which sounds awesome. I'm like, oh, I'm an achiever. That's wonderful. And so you start looking into what the achiever means. Because at my best, the achiever means that I inspire others to do great things and I accomplish a whole lot of stuff and then but the problem is, as you continue reading, it says, but at your worst, you're someone who, who's defined by their accomplishments. And you're somebody who has a tendency to push others down so you can lift yourself up. And I don't know about you, but that's not a very fun thing to hear about yourself. But what I realized is it's really true. And I can tell when I'm functioning at my best, and I can tell when I slip into my worst. 
but only when I really understand who I am and I'm honest about who I am. So for two hours last week, the youth staff on the hall, we just kept talking about what numbers were like, how does this interact with you and with me and how can I be a better leader because of this? But it never would have happened if we weren't honest about who we are. And for too many of us, we're not honest and we keep up this facade and our response to this kind of thing too often is, hey, it's not my fault. If I just would have married somebody different, things would be different. Or it's not my fault. I mean, it can't possibly be my parenting style because my child is just defiant. It's not my problem that all this wrong and this hurt happened to me. This is why I have this addiction. It's not my fault. We say things, it's not my fault. My friends are so sensitive. They just need to kind of get over it. These are bad excuses to continue to live the kind of life that we exist within right now. It's time to be honest with the way that maybe we happen to be the common denominator in some of these things. And in getting real, maybe there's a way that we can actually put some of these things to death so we can move into the next room. We can cross the threshold. We can become more and more the person that God wants us to be. So don't brush it under the rug. Don't make excuses. As Paul would say, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but have a sober self-assessment. Because when we're honest with ourselves, when we put certain things to death, I believe we can experience all new life. And Paul does this at the very end of chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. He describes what the other side looks like. And he says this. He's describing life on the other side. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil for evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you as honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Paul describes this is what life could look like on the other side. If we became honest with ourselves, if we let God do the hard work of putting to death some of the things that hold us back, that keep us from moving forward, if we do that hard, we can experience, I don't know about you, but this is the kind of life that I want to live, the kind of person that I want to be, the kind of church I want to be a part of. A few months ago, my son Eli and I were laying in bed and our bedtime ritual was to read a book every time. And so we had a book that we affectionately called Bible book. We got from the church here years ago. And we had one original one that Eli like read the cover off of. We duct taped it and we had to get another one. And so we were laying in bed a couple months ago. We were reading. I said, hey, bud, what story do you want to read in the, in the book? He said, I want to read the crucifixion. I was like, okay. It's a nice little light evening reading before we go to bed. So we opened up to this chapter. We started reading through the crucifixion. And we started reading about Jesus who, who came and walked this earth. And he gave his life up on a cross. He was, a, he was an ultimate sacrifice. And, and then he rose from the dead that we might know new life. And so we read this and we got finished and I was kind of tired. So I'm like, all right, buddy, just one story, that's it. So it's time for bed. And he looked at me and he said, dad, how would mom and dad know that I'm a Christian besides just being baptized? I was like, well, I don't quite understand what, what you're asking. Like, what do you mean exactly? He said, well, how would you guys know that I'm a Christian? So I was a good dad. I was like, well, buddy, it's really easy. Like there, there's, it's just simply you saying, you know what, Jesus, you get to call the shots in my life. You get to have control. I'm gonna invite you into my heart and you get to 
to guide and direct me from here on out. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. And you make that decision and you tell them about it. And then you, you say, I've, I've messed up in these ways, God. If you'd forgive me, I'll move forward. And I'll live a new life. But he's sick. So afterwards, I'm like, hey, but listen, but like, if you don't want to make this decision right now, I do not want to pressure you. This is a big decision. I'd love for you to think about it, pray about it, whatever. Get real quiet for a second. And he looked at me and he said, no, I think I want to do it now. I said, well, listen, I mean, like, I, I want, God, I want to be clear here. Like, this is a big deal. So like, I need you to think about it. And he said, no, no, I, I think I want to do it right now. I said, okay, well, why don't you, why don't you turn over? So he got on his knees, he put his hands together, and, and he and I prayed, th- prayed through accepting Jesus into his heart. And it was such an awesome thing, because when we got done, he looked up at me, and I told him, I was like, now listen, but you need to understand something. Now that you're a Christian, everything changes. Like, the way you treat your brother now, it's got to change, because you're a Christian. Sneaky. The way you treat your mom, it's got to change because you're a Christian. The way you, the way you act at school, the things that you say, I mean, everything changes now because you're a Christian. You've made this decision to let Jesus run your life and live in your heart. And I, was, I was trying as hard as I can in my head to go through all the things that he could possibly struggle with, you know, and trying to list them off. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and like interrupted me. He's like, hey, dad, listen, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And I just thought to myself as a, a 34-year-old dad, I wish I had the same mentality. And whatever it takes to become the kind of person that God wants me to be, I'll do it. There's no vice and there's no addiction. There's no thing that I'd rather have than really knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. There's no bit of pride that I'm not willing to lay down because I want to be, I want to be more like Jesus. What if, what if we all thought this? Hey, whatever it takes. I mean, this is such a huge, important decision. This is not just something that I do and I add on. This is something that is defining for me. It's not something I do just on Sunday mornings when I put my nice clothes on and I come to church, but it's something that I do when I leave here. And I go to Moe's and I interact with people. Like I, like, I really live it out. What if we had the same kind of mentality? Now I know he's sick, so there's going to be ups and downs and all kinds of things that he goes through. My prayer is that he always has that kind of mentality. Whatever needs to die so that I can have new life, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Whatever has to happen so I can move from this room to that room and cross that threshold and become more mature in my spiritual walk with Jesus, I'll do it. Because I think it's that important. I'll be honest, I've seen so many people in this church that I have enjoyed watching growing in their faith and becoming someone new. And I've enjoyed seeing it happen in my own life. But here's the beauty and the difficult thing about being a believer. You're never done. There's always something else. There's always the next level that God wants to bring us to, and there's always the next room that he wants us to go to. And in doing so, we bring him more glory. We experience true life, and we become a change agent for the world. Whatever it takes. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. God, I pray that every one of us this morning, God, me included, God, I pray you'd help me to see the world through the lens of your mercy and your grace. I pray, Father, that out of my great gratitude, God, that I would want to live a life that honors you. I pray you'd help me to see, God, the ways that I'm just, I'm just complying with the rest of the world and not seeing myself as someone different because of Christ living in me and through me. Would you show me, God, the things that need to die that I might truly live? Father, thank you for the grace that you've offered us and the movement that it can offer within our life. I pray that today, as we leave this place, that you do a great work within our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.